This is Salt and Spine. It was a real journey for me writing this book. You know, like I grew up as a Chinese Australian, but my influences kind of made me neither of those things. I think children of immigrants have just a lot of influences that you're trying to bring together. And it's sometimes hard to bring those two things together because they're always, you know, they're in opposition. They're kind of like never lining up. But in food, I could somehow bring together those influences in a way that made sense to me. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Hetty McKinnon. Hetty's entry to cookbooks began back in 2011, when she started a salad business, delivering lunch via bicycle around her neighborhood in Sydney, Australia. Before long, she found herself writing her first cookbook to catalog her creations and satisfy her customers who had begun asking for her recipes. Now, that early salad business really built a community. The ritual of delivering a salad would lead to, as Hetty writes, lively conversation, exuberant laughter, and a constantly evolving hunting and gathering of stories and histories. Hetty's first cookbook, titled Community, quickly became uber popular, leading to a second cookbook aptly titled Neighborhood. And her path continued, bringing Hetty and her family to Brooklyn, where she now lives and where she wrote and photographed her fourth cookbook, To Asia with Love, Everyday Asian Recipes and Stories from the Heart. It's a warm and inviting book and her most personal book yet, and what Hetty describes as a, quote, homecoming, a joyous return to the humble yet deeply nourishing flavors and meals of my childhood. Like all of Hetty's books, the recipes into Asia with Love are vegetarian and plant-based, a fact that's easily glossed over, as we'll discuss in today's show, and you'll find everything from homemade kimchi to cacio e pepe udon noodles to Asian-inspired salads like a smashed cucumber with tahini and spicy oil. And Hetty's bringing food stories to life beyond her cookbooks. She launched a biannual food magazine, Peddler Journal, in 2017, and she hosts the publication's sister podcast, The House Specials. We were so thrilled that Hetty joined us remotely from her home in Brooklyn for this week's show. Stick around. It's a really great conversation. And of course, we're playing a salad-themed game to close today's episode. So let's head now to our virtual studio, where Hetty McKinnon joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Hetty. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you to talk about your latest cookbook, To Asia with Love, which is beautiful. I've been loving spending some time with it and, and also <laughs> your other cookbooks and your your food career. But I think, as you know, we always like to start by learning a little bit more about you for our guests mm-hmm. who might not be as familiar with your life story and how you sort of came to where you are today. So I like to start by just talking about your childhood. I know you were born in Australia, um, and your parents had immigrated there from China. Can you talk about the role that food played in your life growing up there in Australia? And you write about this so beautifully, too, at the beginning of your book in this this chapter Mm -hmm. titled uh, Embracing a Third Culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I feel like my entire childhood was food. And my parents came from the south of China. On the precipice of the Cultural Revolution, um, my ma- my mum came to Australia to marry my dad, and okay. she was in her early twenties at the time and fell into being a wife and mother almost immediately. So she was, you know, didn't really, still doesn't speak great English, but you know, it was a new country, new language, new lifestyle, new culture, and so she didn't never really worked outside of the house, but she she was she she was in the kitchen all the time and and working feverishly in the kitchen. And that's how I remember my mum. I remember her just in her kitchen doing something, always in motion, pots, you know, simmering tong, you know, an evening medicinal soup, you know, tangled greens in the the, uh, sink, you know, in in one of those plastic colanders, um, Mm -hmm. meat that's been defrosting out of the freezer, um, you know, just – food everywhere. There was no bench space in her kitchen. And so that's that's my most vivid memories of my childhood, really at home. And they're all of my mum cooking. So, you know, I didn't, as you mentioned, you know, I grew up in Australia. Um, I really wanted to be Australian when I was young. So a lot of these things that were happening inside the house 
felt uncomfortable to me, you know, like they were, I just felt really different. Um, and I think that's probably an experience you get from a lot of immigrant children. But sure. I just felt like everything that was happening at home, the foods we were eating, the language we were speaking, the rituals we were practicing, they were just a, a daily reminder that I was different from all my friends at school. So it was a kind of an interesting existence. I remember the child just really wanting to move forward I wanted to you know we lived in the suburbs in a big suburban house that my parents my dad worked very hard for you know like uh -huh. yeah you know worked two jobs and um you know he worked at the markets he actually worked at the produce markets um okay. and at, um, at a Chinese restaurant on the weekends you know like they were like you know not affluent by any means but we never knew that because we always kind of felt like we had what we needed but I just wanted to move forward and I wanted to, like, I was very uncomfortable with my identity. I wanted to just be like everyone else. And I just think that that's, I don't think I'm unusual in feeling that. I think it's what a lot sure. of immigrant children feel. So it wasn't really until I was much older, much, much older, that I began to appreciate um, what that food meant for my mum and what it meant for us. You know, the, the way that she cooked from morning till night, it was like it was food was a lifeline for her, you know, mm -hmm. like she was doing it not just to sustain her family, like the family that she had with her, but it was like it was to clearly a tether to her homeland, like clearly a way of her keeping alive that culture that she kind of abruptly left behind, you know, like... Um, yeah. I think that's one thing we don't think about with immigrants. Don't you? We, she loves Australia. She thinks Australia is the best place on earth, and she still lives there. Uh -huh. And she's really, I mean, a lot of immigrants don't really look back, and she definitely doesn't look back in the terms of what she, what she says, what she vocalizes. But I know internally, you know, she, I think she really misses that life that she had and kind of the unfulfilled life that she had in China because, you know, she was a girl born in the 40s, not a lot of opportunities for sure. females. And then kind of so much of her life, like from her teenage years to her early 20s, was about getting to Australia, about getting to this other country where you'll have a better life. And I think right. it definitely did work out that way for her, but I think that that's one thing I really didn't think about and I think as a society in the West, we don't think about is kind of what immigrants left behind and yeah. that mark that's on them. So I think food is just a huge way of her like staying in touch with, with the homeland and keeping the foods alive that her ancestors cooked. You know, I often would um, ask her, you know, she was such an accomplished cook, like she was known as the cook in the family. She's the second uh -huh. born daughter, her two sisters on either side of her don't really cook. Her okay. mother didn't really cook. I don't, don't okay. remember my grandmother cooking. And her two younger brothers actually owned a Chinese restaurant. They still do own a Chinese restaurant in Sydney. But they're not really cooks. Like, you know, it wasn't really like in her family, she was the cook. She was the one that made all the intricate, the jongs, which is the uh, glutinous rice that's wrapped in banana leaves. And uh -huh. she, she just she's a perfectionist. Everything she did was so beautiful. And, you know, she was known as that person. And so I asked her once when I was a late teenager, I said, how did you learn all these amazing things? Because there's no written recipes, you know, like uh, uh, many people of that generation, everything is passed down orally. But for her, she told me she learned by watching, by observing, uh, okay. which was such a fascinating concept to me both then and now, because as someone who basically writes formulas all day for food, yeah. the idea that you can just watch and then recreate is such an interesting concept. And I, I do think that, you know, now when I write recipes, I always try and remember that to an extent. Like you can't just say, you know, watch someone cook something and you'll know how to cook it. Sure. But there's an element of really letting go in some of the recipes and like feeling things and encouraging people to if you're mixing don't mix by hand don't use mm -hmm. a machine you know just like little things like that as a way of kind of remembering 
how our ancestors cooked, I guess. Yeah. So, so I understand you, it took a while for you to sort of have that same sort of affinity to the food that you had growing up and in the same sense that that's a lifeline for you in the way that it was for her, but that took you a while longer, both to appreciate that. And I think also it took you a while before you were interested in cooking I mean, seriously yeah. or professionally, right? You weren't, were, were you cooking with your mother when you were a teenager or was that something I, you did much later? I always cooked here and there. Like I was always okay. like pretty comfortable around food. Um, one of the first things I learned to do was to crimp um, dumplings. You know, like I would sit with her at the table. and It was kind of like this rite of passage for me. Uh, my sister never did it. Like she's not that interested in cooking, but I always did those little things and I was like taking notice of what she was doing. But to say that I really wanted to work in food or to do to be an avid cook was would be a gross um, exaggeration. Like that was just okay. not what I wanted to do. You know, like I wanted to finish high school, I wanted to go to university, I wanted to get a degree. You know, I was the first person in my family to get a university degree. Um, okay. To you know, I want to work in the world. You know, right. so I worked in PR for many years and. Um, my husband and I actually moved to the UK. Like we worked in London for several years in the early two thousands, and uh-huh. so you know, I kind of I, I feel like for a lot of that time, I was I was presenting myself in a way that I was you know emphatically Australian and really not touching on the Chinese side of me at all. Even though that every time I went home, I spoke Chinese to my mum. You know, like I was Chinese sure. every time I went to, back to her house. But outside of that, I was very much. Australian and it really I, I mean if he had told me 15 years ago that I'll be doing this I wouldn't have believed it I would have said uh-huh. you were a crazy person uh-huh. um, because it's it was never on the cards but after I had we moved back to Australia after I had my first daughter and then I had two more kids I've got three kids and after the birth of my third child I realized I didn't really want to go back to that life of working in an office. I wanted something that would kept me at home. My mum was home my whole life and uh-huh. maybe subconsciously that I was influenced by that. But I want I still wanted to work, but I just wanted something where I was within my home, within my community. So I had this kind of harebrained scheme to start cooking salads. Right. Um, I'm vegetarian, so there would be vegetarian salads. And I would just deliver them around the neighborhood to random people who may or may not order from me. So that was, <laughs> there was no grand plan. I had no, you know, no training, no, no culinary training, um, no write, like not, I wasn't writing recipes. I was just kind of coming up with stuff, stuff like I would eat at home. And I just wanted to really share it with the community. And that was really all all I went into it with. And this was in 2011, so it really wasn't that okay. long ago. Sure. So as I started cooking for people in the community, I was meeting people, like some were some were friends, some were strangers, some were people that worked in the area, some were people who lived in the area. And, you know, something just happened. You know, I just felt something, just everything fell into place. Like I began to see food as this ultimate connector, you know, like this, this handing over of a salad box came to mean everything to me. Like I have to say, like it just completely changed my life because I saw food as this common language. You know, we would come together over a salad box, but we, our relationship would go so much wider than that. And I have lifelong friends from that business, you know, people that were, are very dear to me and, I cared about the people I was feeding, like they were my family, you know, like I, uh-huh. I remember thinking I knew, you know, I was one of those people, I knew this person was allergic to peppers. So sure. if I was doing a pepper salad, I'll, I'll, I'll let her know that she can't order that one or, right. you know, I knew everybody's likes and dislikes and it was just so, it was so such an intoxicating kind of thing to discover about yourself um, at, you know, quite, I was pretty old by then, um, but it, it just became um, so incredible, like just food as a way of just coming together with strangers, neighbours, and sort of two years into that, they people started asking me for recipes, and I didn't really have any written down, so that's when I started writing recipes, like just writing them down and teaching myself how to write a recipe that made sense, 
Um, sure. It was literally just really learnt on the spot and maybe like looking at some cookbooks, but I didn't even really have that, that many cookbooks at the time. Okay. Um, and, you know, I wrote down, uh, I think it was a collection of 60 recipes that were all salads that I was feeding people over the last kind of two years. And then I self-published that book and it was called Community. Right. And it was never meant to be anything. It was meant to be just a cookbook for my community and the people that ordered <laughs> from me, but I wanted it to be pretty and um, like a friend photographed it and we just kind of like, I kind of just sold it to the people that ordered salads off me. So for a time sure. I was cycling salads and books. Um, uh-huh. But then, you know, I, I printed a thousand copies because that was the minimum print run or something like that. And I just kind of resigned myself that I would permanently devote a corner of my house to these books. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was one of those incredible things. This was, it, they sold out in three weeks and I had like two or 300 back orders and I had no books. And then, I had to, I knew I had to reprint. And then literally the day that I was going to order the new print run, I got a phone call out of the blue from a publisher from Pam Macmillan in Australia, like a big publisher saying, we want, we saw the book somewhere and we want to publish it. So that has been really the start of my cookbook journey. (laughs) You know, that that book is a very beloved book in Australia and um, it's available kind of here too but it for many years was only available in Australia and it's like kind of redefined what a vegetarian main meal salad could be yeah it was just it's I'm very very proud of that book because I do feel like it's not only I don't feel like that book is about me anymore you know it's about the people who have taken it and loved it and shared it with friends and shared it wide I've seen like whatsapp groups devoted just to recipes from that book and it's so wonderful when it's just something that just takes on a life of its own and it's not even it's not really about me anymore I kind of love that it's like the people's book so um yeah that's kind of what started it all that book (laughs) yeah and what a what a fascinating way to sort of become a cookbook author right it it all just sort of fell into place and and it you know community did become a very successful book and has a great following and and is well known I think among folks who love cookbooks when you first got that call from the publisher and realized okay this is going to be more than a thousand copies this book is going to be published you know from a large Mm -hmm. publisher at that point did you think like this is maybe a career path for me or now you're uh, this is your fourth book am I right yes Um, fourth book like when did this sort of fall into place for you that like this was going to be a a part of your career I still thought when community came out nationally in 2014 I think it was around May I still thought that my career would be in cooking actually Uh like I still really thought that but at that time concurrently I was finding it really hard to grow the business I didn't I'm I'm not a business person I'll I'll admit that quite freely what I love is I'm a creative so um, I really just all I wanted to do was to cook for the people the same people I'd be cooking for for four three and a half four years I was not that interested in becoming like a cafe or a restaurant or this big business, but there was the pressure. There was when that book came out nationally, I was getting just people from all over Sydney wanting, you know, wanting the salads and all this. And for me, I was like really spooked by all of that. I was like, I don't know if I really want this. I just want to, I just want this small thing that I've been doing. And then that very same year, only a few months later, I got the offer to move to New York. My husband got the offer to move to New York. And I, it was me that said, I want to do it. Like, I want to leave this. The book has just come out. I, I didn't see, I didn't really think that I'll be writing another book. I really just wanted to cook. And I thought yeah. I could redo the salad business in Brooklyn. So that was really the plan when I came okay. over here. And you and did for a while, right? I did for a little while. I did for yeah. about six months, but things are different okay. over here, clearly. <laughs> yes. um, you can't cook from home. I mean, in Sydney, I was legally cooking from home because it was a, a small business. But you can't cook from home. I was cooking in a commercial kitchen. And, you know, delivery is different in New York. Everyone gets food delivered. In Sydney, it's like still kind of back then, it was kind of a gimmick to have food delivered. So uh-huh. it just was met. I mean, people loved it and people will still stop me on the street and go, oh, remember when you were delivering salads? So, but it was just, it was just different, like not being able to base it from home and have it like truly 
based in a community. And then I did pop-ups for a little while and I still hope in the future I can do that. But then I was, you know, I was offered to do the second book just before I left Australia, actually. Like I was, all, my house was already packed up and the publisher okay. had said, you know, we want you to do a second book. And I said, well, I know it's going to be called Neighbourhood, but uh-huh. I don't know what the book is going to, I have it vaguely in my mind, but I don't know what the story will be because story as you probably know, is a really big part of my books. It's not just a collection right. of recipes. It's a story, um, and I like to take my readers on a journey. So I said, you know, I'm going to move to New York, and then we had also, like, travelled a little bit before we got to New York. And I said, I'll I'll let you know when I get to New York what the book's going to be. So the first winter we were here was, like, the coldest winter on record for like 30 or 40 years and I grew up in I grew up in Sydney and I'd never really seen snow before you know not Uh not 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 real snow not not snow that wasn't out of a machine right um and so I was at you know my kids my two of my kids had started school my youngest one was at home so I said I'm gonna write the book like I really want to write this book so it the book just the neighborhood just poured out of me like in three months I wrote that book um and some of the recipes were like leftovers from like from the business like some of the newer recipes that I'd been cooking a lot of it was about um we'd spend a month in France just before we arrived in New York and a lot of it was about just um we you know it was in a small town and we just shopped from the local markets and cooked what we had so that kind of um kind of formed the story of just really surrendering to your surroundings and cooking you know the types of like how your surroundings affects what you eat and what you cook and how that's kind of okay so the journey is kind of like from Europe to some of the places I've traveled before when we lived in Europe to America to like my Asian influence and then Australia so it's a bit of a kind of a worldwide tour of salads um but that really did feel like a follow-up to community and I think after I wrote Neighbourhood, I think I decided, I, I don't know if it was conscious or subconscious, but it felt like that was what I should be doing. You know, okay. like I should be writing books. I, that's probably what I was going to focus more on. And I love writing cookbooks. I love them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want to do it forever kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That, that's so great. And all all of your books, I mean, even up to your most recent book, To Asia With Love, really have such a great theme of community. And yeah. I mean, your first book is literally named Community, <laughs> but all of your books have such a, a central theme around community or family food. Yeah. But I think your your newest book, To Asia With Love, is such a, it's personal in another way. It's probably, yeah. I would say, your most personal book. And you write mm. in the introduction that it's your homecoming of yeah. sorts. Can you talk about how the concept for this new book surfaced for you and how you yeah. knew that this is how this is what this new book would look like or what it would be? Yeah. I mean, I think you're completely correct. I mean, I think that idea of community is the foundations of everything I do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't matter which book it is. Um or that is always the 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 root of where the story grows. So, after so there's two things that really led to to Asia with love maybe more than two things, maybe three things. Okay. Um, the first thing is really moving to, to Brooklyn, being away from sure. my mum again um, and feeling incredibly nostalgic for the food that I grew up with. The second thing was working on family, my third book, mm-hmm. and thinking about the impact that food from our youth and the, the notions of eating together at a dinner table, which we always did growing up, and yeah. it doesn't matter, like, it was, I don't think there was like, we ever missed a day of eating dinner together at the dinner table. And, and that the impact that that has upon our perceptions of food and, and how we see food and how we appreciate food as adults. And then the third thing was working on Peddler, actually, my mag- the multicultural magazine that I self, I publish kind of twice a year. And that really was a, a very free space for me to tell stories that didn't really have a lot of commercial value in a way. Like there's no there's no advertising in that. It's just purely mm-hmm. like just stories, little small stories that create lasting memories. And, yeah. and that's kind of what it was built on. And t- through telling those stories and for the first, the very first edition was a Chinatown edition. 
And I told the story of my mum's, her dumplings that she made, that she's revered for in our family. They're, gok, they're called Gokjai dumplings. They're from Jungsan, which is where my family are from in, in okay. Guangdong province. So it's a very regional dish. And I was kind of like telling that story of making those with her and like that rite of passage for me. Um, and I guess through telling stories like that and freeing myself to really like reconnect with my childhood and my cultural heritage, it kind of gave me the confidence to to do it in a more mainstream way. So after I finished Family, I knew immediately that my next book would be an Asian book. Uh-huh. I thought it would be more of a Chinese book, actually. Okay. Um, more, and there are very, it has all the recipes in there that I wanted to include in there. But as I was writing it, I kind of went down, a, it, it was a real journey for me writing this book. You know, like I grew up as a Chinese Australian, but my influences kind of made me neither of those things um, because I think children of immigrants have, there's a lot of confusion or just a lot of influences that you're trying to bring together. And it's sometimes hard to bring those two things together because they're always you know, they're in opposition. They're kind of like never lining up. So the Chinese side and my Australian side, I felt like never really lined up. But in food, I could somehow bring together those influences in a way that made sense to me. And that's what I refer to as the third culture cooking because, you know, it's not like my mum would ever make noodles with Vegemite and cheese. But right. to me, it's like, you know, it kind of encapsulates me on a plate. Right. And yeah. And so, so when I started working on this book, this is kind of the journey I went down, you know, like of there's very traditional recipes in there, like the steamed water egg custard, which was a meal that, oh, you know, it's just so iconic to my, you know, to dishes that I thought were unique to my mom, actually. There was uh-huh. a lot of things through writing this book that I've connected with up fellow. Asian Americans, Asian Australians, um, who grew up in families similar to mine who ate these dishes. And a lot of okay. people said to me, I cannot believe that is in a cookbook. Like my grandmother made that every single day and I didn't know how to make it. I had no idea. And now you've written the recipe for it. Right. And, um, and so it's been like incredible to do that and to provide that to this generation of kids who may have lost those recipes. You know, they yeah. hold the memories, but they've lost the recipes because, you know, maybe grandma has passed or maybe mum doesn't cook anymore. So it's been, um, you know, it's been amazing. So there's those types of recipes, but then there's recipes that really just reflect who I am and all the influences of living in the world, different parts of the world, um, growing up in a Western country. And growing up in a country that is very close to Asia and, you know, Australian food, it's so Asian inspired without even thinking. And it's almost in the DNA of Australian food to have all these ingredients that people don't really think about. Oh, is that from Vietnam or is that from Indonesia? Is it from China? Is it from Korea? Just kind of all mixed in together because of our proximity. So it's very unique to Australia in a way. Um, It's very fluid, the Asian influence in Australian food. So I think you see that reflected in the recipes. So it's it's been such an incredible experience to be able to write some of these recipes down and to really give not only like it's a book for everyone it's not just a book for people who are of Asian descent or people who like Asian food for me one of the cornerstones of writing the recipes was made was really democratizing democratizing Asian food I really wanted people because people said to me over and over I love Asian food but I can't cook it Asian food is so intimidating. If I knew how to cook it, I would cook it every night, but it's impossible. It's too hard. And I I really took those words and I thought about, like, really? Like, was what my mum cooking every night, was it that difficult? Like, was it that? And I'm not saying there's not art and there's not artistry. There is all of that in the way they cook and generations of of, um, knowledge there. But in terms of just flavours and achieving and 
achieving those flavors on a nightly basis, that doesn't have to be hard. And so that's what this book really is. It's I see it as like a gateway book for people who want to learn how to cook Asian food from many different cultures. It's just like sometimes like flipping a switch in your head. Like a lot of people say to me, I cook Italian food all the time. You know, they're not Italian, but I'm really comfortable cooking Italian food. But when it comes to noodles or, you know, Asian style noodles, I got no idea. And it's like, it's kind of the same thing. It's just changing the flavor profile a little bit, you know. Right, Um, right. So that's what I'm really trying to do with this book is really like welcome people to the Asian table and encourage them to just, you know, break down that boundary a little bit just for a moment because I think that's all it's going to take. You know, Uh it's just going to take like someone to just go look at these recipes and go, oh, well, I've got. 90% 90% of this stuff in my pantry already, you know? Right. So I, I, and I think that's, that's, it's been working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that concept of democratizing Asian cooking and, and dispelling some of these myths. I mean, another one that you talk about in the book is this myth that Asian food is meaty or, or mm-hmm. tends to be focused on me. And obviously as a vegetarian, you're presenting so many recipes that are not centered on meat. And yeah. you talk about dispelling that myth too for home cooks. How has that sort of impacted your recipe development process as a vegetarian now too? For yeah. I know you've been a vegetarian for quite a while. For a long time. I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, like half an hour into this conversation, we're only just mentioning the vegetarian oh, right. aspect <laughs> because um, it's not something that I put on my covers that often because for me vegetarian food is has always been about what I'm gaining and not what I'm losing I've spent a good 20 years really adapting recipes to my my diet which is vegetarian and it's been fascinating because obviously I grew up eating meat until I was a a teenager I tried most meats under the sun and um, it just was not right for me and I I made that decision to to cut it from my diet but my mum immediately started started like changing her recipes and she made lots of things that the same things that I was eating like the mapo tofu recipe Uh in here was one of the very very first things that she adapted to be a vegetarian recipe for me um and it's one of the first things that she actually taught me to cook when I was like living out of home and so I just wanted to show people that like these are the things that I eat I I can eat Asian food every night and it doesn't need to have meat I think that the the problem is that when you go out to restaurants and I still Mm -hmm. have this problem when I eat out at Asian restaurants it it tends to be really meaty um and it is sometimes like sometimes you can almost not find one thing on the menu that is purely vegetarian if you're taking away the broth and all that sort of stuff. Um, But home cooking is so balanced. You know, like we ate vegetables every single night in a really like a big way and it wasn't like it was like it wasn't like a meat with three veg. It was like a very fluid. It was, you know, in stir fries. It was in – we never – my mum never said to us, eat your vegetables. Uh-huh. You know, so vegetables was always like a big part of the meals um, that my mum cooked. And so, yeah, a lot of my food career has been in adapting those recipes and making them as flavoursome, if not more flavoursome, but without the addition of meat. And that's something that I think a lot of people, some people who have bought the book, said. I've heard people say they've gone halfway through before they've realised <laughs> that there's no meat in there. Right, um, yeah. And so, like, that's just a a really interesting aspect of the book, I think. A lot of people have said to me that they've not been able to eat Asian food because they don't eat meat. Mm. And to me, that's, oh, it's so sad, isn't it? Like, that's so, um, to to feel, if, if you don't cook it yourself and to feel like you don't, you can't eat that entire cuisine because you can't find it when you go out to restaurants. It's that's really hard, and like for sure. me, having grown up as, around these around these dishes, like I can go to a restaurant and I can find the two or three things that are vegetarian because I know what to look out for. But right. a lot of people, if you you haven't, it, it's it can be really hard. 
but you know asian home cooking is is really balanced and that's um it didn't take that much work to tip it over to being vegetarian we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with hetty mckinnon don't go anywhere remember you can follow us on instagram at saltandspine.com where you'll find chances to win copies of the books featured on our show and this week you'll find a featured recipe from hetty mckinnon's to asia with love for sheet pan chow mein we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Carla Hall to today's guest, Hetty McKinnon, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, and we're doing seasonal dinner parties with our featured authors. And our summer author is today's guest, Hetty McKinnon. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our efforts to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Hetty McKinnon, author of To Asia with Love. I love that you decided for this book too, that you would shoot all the photos yourself Um, because, you know, we're talking about how this is a very personal book, like all of your books are, but this is really a quite personal one. Can you talk about that decision to do the photography yourself? And I know that your father was sort of an amateur photographer and yeah. that you had a, a an exposure to photography from a pretty early age too. Yeah. I think I've always been um, a repressed photographer always wanted uh-huh. to be like I always saw my, I, never, I, did, I didn't want to be a professional photographer but I've always taken photos I've always taken photos and my father passed away when I was a teenager and okay. I inherited well nobody else wanted his cameras except for me so I've got a lot of them and I've got one of them with me in New York the rest is still in Sydney and so you know I realized in a lot of my work that I do it's about my mum you know, like it's it's about her legacy and about the impact that she's had on my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she's the biggest influence in what I do, whether I cook Asian food or Mediterranean food or any kind of food. It's It all really stems from my mum. So um, I wanted something that was, you know, paying homage to, to my dad and what I remember of him and what he did for us. And I always remember him taking photos and he had kind of he used to develop photos in our laundry he had like like Uh photography stuff everywhere and he carried massive video cameras with him when we went on family holidays family vacations and so it was always in my mind you know when you're a kid and you think your parents are like the best thing ever or you think they just you just kind of um, really admire the things that they do I really admired my dad's photos and we had photo albums and albums and albums of his photos. And so I just wanted to kind of, you know, bring that aspect to it in a kind of a quiet way. And plus I used some of, I used his camera for some of the photos, not all of them. There was a couple of, I had a couple of of film cameras I was using. And also, you know, I think that film lends something so real and raw that you can, I guess you can achieve it with digital photography, but it's, you spend hours in post-production trying sure. to. I've heard photographers say this to me. It's like, I try and make my digital photos look like film. Right. And so for me, being an unprofessional photographer, I just thought I'm just going to cut that step out and just take the photos on film. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, yeah, they're largely unedited. They, uh, they were all backed up on a digital camera, but I didn't use any digital photography in the book at all. It's um and you know people have really noticed it you know like did film photography it's not just nostalgia but there is mm-hmm. something else about it. it it's the like the imperfections of it you know the the colors that are just in the film that are not you know they're real colors right and I think film photography really invites you into the picture it's like there's a depth to it that invites you in and it makes you feel like you're not watching it but you're you're in it you're in the scene um and so yeah there's there was also no stylist (laughs) on this book just me right um and And all your own props all your own dishes right all my own dishes and you know messy kitchens and 
all that stuff. But I really did want to convey this real kind of you know rawness to it. Like this is just, you know, this is me. And I think that goes back to the theme that you mentioned earlier, this homecoming. Like I really, you know, I mentioned like I didn't really feel comfortable with who I was growing up and I felt like I muted a lot of who I was. But since I've been cooking, I've been becoming more and more confident and um, more confident in who I am and more comfortable with my identity. And so the book is kind of that. It's kind of like this coming out of sorts, like this is everything of who I am is in is in these pages. And that includes like not really styling the, the food and just letting it be. Yeah, so it's kind of all there. I mean, a lot of this stuff is nuanced. So it's really lovely to be able to talk about some of the yeah. other things behind the recipes. So yeah, and it's and it's a significant undertaking too. I mean, a lot of cookbook authors have, as you mentioned, you know, stylists. Often mm-hmm. it's someone else doing the photography. What was that like to sort of have the project rest so so squarely on your shoulders and to be sort of guiding so many elements of the production of the book? It was really peaceful, you know. Mm-hmm. I, it was a real kind of, um, you know, writing writing itself is a really kind of um, lonely process, but I think it needs to be. It needs to be. You know, a lot of first-time authors say to me, oh, it's so hard writing this book. Like I just, I can't get my head around sitting down all day at a computer and just writing. And I'm I'm like, for me, it's like, I always say it's a headspace. You've got to get yourself in that space because it is, it's not, it's not like a social thing. You can't write and be social. You've got to be somehow kind of in your own head to get to the spot where you're going to be telling a good story. And, you know, and I see my recipes that way too. Like my, I see recipes as a story. And so usually the photography bit is very social and you have lots of people around and, you know, there's someone cooking the food and, you know, you're cooking alongside people. But for this one, it was like all done in kind of real time, you know, like I would cook it and then I would you know, mack around with it and then I would just kind of take a photo and it would be no big deal. But it was um, a really nice way of doing it. And I think because the book is quite introspective, working that way really suited it, I think. It was, the photos are very quiet and, you know, quite muted in a way and Mm -hmm. with no styling. And I think it just suits the whole vibe of the book. So um, it's a lot of work, but I didn't feel like, you know, the most stressful thing was the film. And, oh, sure. um, <laughs> and at the time, you know, you know, I was sending the film to a film house in San Francisco, actually, okay. because I had had some film developed with them and I just loved the way they did it. It was so efficient and I really trusted them. So I don't think, I never actually told them I was working on a cookbook, but okay. I know that they would, you know, every week get 10 rolls of film and it would all be like, you know, and some of it was terrible. Like some of it was all wonky and blurry and they would probably go, oh, God, not this not this woman again <laughs> developing blurry photos. But, um, yeah, it was that bit was the most stressful actually. Whenever I sent them off in a FedEx, I would feel like I can't. Yeah. I just I'm very like scared that something's going to happen to them. Right. Um, so it had all those other elements to it. But I think – it's worth it in the end. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> it's They're beautiful. We're a show on cookbooks, obviously. So I'm curious now, you've written four cookbooks. You sort of uh, initially fell into cookbook writing and, mm. and now love it as a profession. Are there authors or books who have been particularly influential to you, either you know inspiring to you or that you've even turned to for inspiration as you've built your own books? Yeah, I think that... Um, I have a few favourites. I mean, Diana Henry is mm-hmm. probably my favourite cookbook author because she, um, you know, I've met her a couple of times and she's so inspirational because she sees cookbook writing as her job too. And, yeah. you know, it's not just, oh, like, you know, I got a book deal. It's it's a serious business for her and the way she tells a story is so compelling and it's really something I, I do look up to, the way she produces a book and her method of storytelling her love of food is lifelong and so she has so much knowledge and I I really respect and admire her work um yeah 
Nigella, obviously. Nigella, mm-hmm. it, oh, just her prose about food is um, so beautiful and so, like, warm and real too, you know. Yeah. Like, you can read her work and go, this woman just loves food. And, you know, I I aspire to loving food that much. I mean, I love food a lot, but she's just – you know, she, I think, was the, the person who really changed food writing. And so in, in all the, the people I admire in food, I am looking for a story. You know, I'm looking for a deeper meaning to why they write books, why they write recipes. Yeah, and in terms of, like, just actual books I love, I mean, I, I really love Betty Lou's latest book, My Shanghai, uh-huh. because I feel like that was a part of you know, I'm Chinese, but there's many different types of Chinese. And I realized I knew nothing about Shanghai food or nothing uh-huh. about Shanghai culture. And so it's really fascinating for me to read about from a perspective of someone who's has had very similar experiences to me, but in a really kind of different way. And it's so beautiful the way she writes about her family. So I think there's some, um, yeah, there's a lot of wonderful food writers out there and it's it's really exciting to experience food through their eyes yeah those are those are great folks to look to and we've been lucky enough to have both diana and nigella on the show before so that's yeah yeah, those are great well we always end with a little game so i thought we'd play a little game today because your your food career really started around salads and i know you've talked before in other interviews and things that Americans tend to have a very constricted <laughs> view of what a salad is, right? It's it's some lettuce with something in addition yeah. to it, which is a very limiting view to have on mm-hmm. salads. So I thought we'd use this card we have, which has 60 different produce items on it. And I'll let you pick a number. <laughs> Fruits and vegetables, both. I'll let you pick a number and that will tell us what produce we're working with and how we might salad it. If that okay. makes sense. Yeah, love um, it. And maybe we can open some some listeners' minds too to it, the potential of of salading. <laughs> um, how does that sound? This is great. This is hilarious, actually. Okay. And so just for your context, uh, one through thirty tend to be more of the vegetable okay. options, and thirty-one through sixty are generally more of the fruit options. Okay. Cool. So we'll do, we'll gonna, see how this goes. Let's yeah. let's pick a number to start. I'm going to start with number nine. It's my lucky number. Number nine is a butternut squash. Oh, that's so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like I think any vegetable is like so perfect in a salad. But um, I have made many butternut squash salads in my life. So what I love about butternut squash is the sweetness. Um, mm-hmm. the sweetness which you which is just inherent in the vegetable so you know roasting a butternut squash but then adding spices to it like I love to play on that sweetness and add um, say cinnamon to it mm, so you yeah. roast it in the cinnamon and then um, you know you could add something like a like a cumin vinaigrette and so my salads are always hearty so I would add um, you know like chickpeas like some sort of legume and just a few leaves not too many just a few right you know yes the star is the squash not not the leaves exactly exactly that's great that was an easy one let's do another one oh okay another number um one through 60 oh number 23 23 okay 23 is green garlic Oh wow, green garlic! You know, as the I would, star of a salad. How do we do star, it? I would um, char it. Actually, mm, I would okay. char. So when I was in Australia, I did a lot of cooking of my vegetables on a barbecue on a grill. Okay, mm-hmm. so I would char the green garlic until the sweetness comes out. This natural sweetness, obviously, different sweetness to butternut squash. Um, right. But you know, like all the all the the alliums have a lot of sweetness in them. So I would char that. And then add it to like a farro, um, which is a mm. great Italian grain. Yeah. And I would do a soy tahini with it. Oh, delicious. And some nuts. And some nuts. Oh, okay. Always, yeah, some always nuts, yeah. always herbs. I mean, yes. nuts and herbs are a given in my salads. So. Yes. Okay, that next delicious. number. Oh, this is fun. Yeah, let's um, do a fruit one. How about okay. 31 to 60? Pick one of How those. How about 36? 36 is a nectarine. 
Oh, so good. So I've been um, loving stone fruit in a caprese. So I started mm -hmm. doing this a couple of summers ago where, you know, like, you know, when you've got an excess of stone fruit, so it can be nectarines, it can be um, plums, but I would, you can have them fresh, but I quite like nectarines, like just quickly seared on either okay. a grill pan or a barbecue, just so it's got it, you know, and obviously cooking, it brings out some of the sugars, cooks some of the sugars and adding that to it uh, with some tomatoes, some tomatoes, um, mm -hmm. basil, and, or basil <laughs> and uh, <laughs> mozzarella or a big hunk of burrata. Oh, yeah. And that is literally one of my favorite summer salads. Oh, yes. That sounds so delicious. That's, oh, no, now I'm summer. craving like fresh tomatoes <laughs> right now. <laughs> like oh, We're I almost know. there. <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Another number? Uh, let's do one more. Yeah. Let's, okay. let's close um, it out with a final let's one. Let's go 52. 52 is a honeydew melon. Oh, yes. Wow. Honeydew melon. I mean, I feel like I uh, I would probably use that like I would use a watermelon in a salad. Okay. Um, so I love watermelon in a salad, but it's quite sweet. And honeydew has got that nice kind of robust texture. Yeah. I would pair it with um, halloumi cheese. Oh, and mm -hmm. I would do some um, grilled, quickly grilled halloumi cheese with the sweet melon. And I would add another fairly salty element in that. Like, so maybe like some caper, like a caper vinaigrette or something. Okay. Um, something to add some acidity. Uh, because I think, I feel like honeydew is a fairly kind of mellow flavor. So right. the, and like a keeper vinaigrette would add like some, some acidity and also would add some like kind of zestiness and would kind of just bring alive the saltiness of the halloumi. Yeah, delicious. I love how <laughs> eagerly you're just like putting these all together. I feel like we could go for hours. And we I could really could. Keep this picking really numbers. And <laughs> <laughs> this is really fun. This, this is so fun. And it comes so naturally to you. I love it. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. am I going to get banana? Because my dad was a banana monger. Oh. But um, as we grew up, like eating lots of bananas, but I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do a banana in a salad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good thing you didn't pick number 54 then, because 54 oh. is banana. <laughs> you got yes. lucky this time. Yeah. I got lucky. I'm going to yeah. have to think of a banana salad now, aren't I? Just yes. For yeah. People reference. are going to be asking once they hear this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, this was so much fun, Hetty. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you, Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find a featured recipe from To Asia With Love for sheet pan chow mein. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes, and you can join the Salt and Spine community to support our show at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and our intern is Clea Worster. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Monique at Hardcover Cook, and to Celia at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 